Marcus Sahaba Online Radio. Empowering the Ummah. He's a doctor of Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Someone that, alhamdulillah, really resonates positively on the platforms of Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Hala Sunnah, Wal Jama'ah. And as I said, Dr. Imran Tika, I'll repeat that for you, he is um, the member of the provincial legislature and he is a doctor of Chinese medicine and acupuncture. And mashallah, with his uh, education portfolio, I've been seeing how busy he is. And perhaps, uh, yeah, before we get to our topic proper, we'll be asking him a few questions, of which uh, inshallah he will satisfy uh, for the listenership. Dr. Imran Kika and the listeners of Amarka Sahaba, the voice of Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening, uh, Dr. Saab? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah for the opportunity, Brother Shafat. Greetings of peace and salam upon your listeners as well. I hope everybody is enjoying this beautiful evening. It's a nice winter's evening here in Newcastle where I'm sitting. Um, and yeah, as I always say when we join your show, uh, and your lavish introductions. I remember the words of my Sheikh uh, Rahimahullah, who always said, Ham aise rahe, ya ke waise rahe, waha dekna hai, ham kese rahe. So, you know, in this dunya, we live like this and we live like that. It is about how we will be in the akhirah that we have to worry about. Jazakallah for the opportunity, Brother Shabbat. I tell you, Dr. Imran Kika, you've touched on something because I love the spirituality, especially when I get guests here that come in, especially people like yourself, you know, that many community members that look up to you, the masses look up to you. And when you bring in your spirituality and you talk about humility and it is stated he that humbles himself will be elevated. And Alhamdulillah, you know, also you have been, did some other courses, you know, towards Dean and I believe you're half a sub. Half a sub or half, okay. you know, but Allah alam. Uh, you know, you have done all that, and uh, many of your comrades uh, that, uh, you know, studied with you in the medical field. And whenever I meet them, uh, sometimes I have them on my show also. And uh, they always, you know, remember you with very fond and warm memories. And I think uh, you also have a very reciprocal feeling for them. Uh, you know, like minds or great minds think alike. Fill me in, doctor. Alhamdulillah. Uh, Brother Shavad, no, I'm not a Hafiz. Uh, I must admit that I attempted to do Hivs at some stage in my life. Uh, completed only up to Surah Bakara and then of course some Suwar here and there, uh, like everybody else. But uh, no, I, I don't have the distinct pleasure of calling myself Hafizah. And yes, indeed, uh, you know, Allah Ta'ala has given us the opportunity to travel and meet many people and interact with many people and uh, be part of people's lives and and also be vulnerable brother shafat by opening ourselves up and being open books in terms of the work we do so gee we have the opportunity to meet many people and i'm quite glad that uh, some of my colleagues feature on your show some of them very close friends of mine I know one of my closest friends uh, features regularly on your show, uh, Dr. Ridwan Umar. He's a pediatrician in Teguini in, at Crompton Hospital, so I know he often features on your show. Uh, may Allah Ta'ala grant him a long life. He recently lost his mother as well. May Allah Ta'ala grant her Jannah 
grant all the marhumin jannah and closeness and closeness and proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, and may they all be with the shuhada and salihin inshallah and uh, it is a distinct pleasure as well that we have had the opportunity to interact with our mashayikh um, with our Amir Saab of Marcus Sahaba as well, Mufti A.K. Saab, Dhamad Barakatuhum, uh, when we were still younger and he was in Newcastle. We learned a lot from him, he guided us. And, uh, you know, if we, if I look back at the journey and, and think about this journey of uh, having been in the company of uh, ulama and mashayikh, Darulum Newcastle was a place that nurtured us as youngsters. Mufti Saab often opened his house to us. We could go and sit there with him as young rascals that we were, you know, riding around on our bicycles. We would just go and knock at his door and disturb him. And he would warmly welcome us into his house and entertain us and take all our childish questions and answer them and interact with us. So we, we benefited greatly so that, uh, you know, that openness uh, that and that welcome uh, environment that Mufti Saab created for us is one that I think that uh, most of our ulama offer anybody. Alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala has made them great people. And, uh, you know, I, I see this, I, I have a young son, he's, he's about, what, he's 15 years old now. He's uh, doing hives. Alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala make it easy for him. And uh, he's closely attached to his ustad. And I see in him uh, that nurturing nature of his ustad, that guiding nature of his ustad, uh, that closeness that he and, and bond that he has formed with his ustad. I, I think that that is far more valuable than the knowledge that he is gaining and learning from his ustad, because he has somebody to guide him over and above the guidance of his father. And I think our ulama, all of them, offer this to the youngsters. We have our alimas and our mothers who are involved in the work of deen who also impart this. And I think that if we don't have these kinds of bonds with the people that know, you know, it, our youth will tend to go astray. So I'm not saying that, you know, my, still, my son is still young and may Allah protect him and many of us have young children and we have this worry. But I think that where the opportunity exists, that we make sure that this kind of interaction takes place between our youngsters and the ulama on a frequent and common basis. Um, I had the opportunity, you know, some of my neighbors who live literally 50 and 100 meters away, some people, some of them have passed away, that during my days in school, they would... Um, allow me the opportunity to interact with them, go out in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and gain that other side of things. I remember Brother Shafat, um, there was a brother from Danhauser, uh, Brother Hussein Muhammadi, has passed away, rahimahullah. May Allah ta'ala also grant him the highest stages of Jannah and his proximity. I remember that the first time that I ever spoke in public was when I went out in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and as they have in their programs, uh, you know, they have this ilan that needs to be given after a salah to say that my success and your success lies in obeying the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the way shown to us by Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
and you know as they would say after the remainder of the salah there would be this program that is taking place and may the brothers remain behind so i was given this responsibility i think i was no more than 15 or 16 years old um, the age where my son is now and i stood up there and i got stuck and this brother was sitting in the second surf and he moved his mouth you know he said the words and i looked at him and i repeated basically what he said uh, i reminded him of this incident many years later and i said to him that you know that was my first public speaking experience and i said that now that i'm a politician and i was reminding him of it while i was in a hall meeting in denhauser you know we have this political party rallies and things like that and i was in denhauser and i was in a hall meeting and i reminded him of the incident there and I, and, and very lightheartedly i said to him that today you will regret that you mentored me into public speaking because now as a politician i don't know when to shut up so you know he he and i had a good laugh about that but yeah so these were the experiences of our youth that nurtured us and that made us the men that we are today and i always think to myself you know more recently uh, you know I'm, I'm brother shafat i'm 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 still a middle aged man i'm 47 years old and i think to myself that you know i'm not going to live um, the same number of years that i've already lived and if anything should humble us in life and bring us back to allah subhanahu wa taala it is this sobering thought that you know we life is short if we sit back and think at how young we were and what we did and where we are now and whatever little we've accomplished it is only and solely by the grace of allah subhanahu wa taala that he has given us this opportunity to serve in sun through the politics that we are involved in the practice that we are involved in through the ability to appear on your show for example and impart some of what we have learned it is all only by the grace of allah subhanahu wa taala we don't do he does he gives us the ability and he has provided his through his grace uh, these opportunities for us so may allah taala take this service from us and reward us for it because we are doing it only and solely for his pleasure and for the purposes of uh, you know raising our own status and that of our parents and asatiza and those from whom we learned in the akhirah inshallah there is no other purpose for the shafaat mm, absolutely and, uh, very eloquent there indeed and uh, very interesting uh, allah bless you for that and also my cousin uh, dr zubair dulhar khan when you said 47 i smiled Gee. He's my cousin, same age like you. Yeah, hey, I mean, you guys are young, but you're achieved. Mashallah, you've made your mark. Hey, hey, I give your full marks. Now, uh, doctor, I I didn't know that you are related to Subair. Um, he did his internship training here in Newcastle, so we've kept in touch every now and then. Not not so often as I would like to. Um, a fantastic ENT surgeon doing some fantastic work. Uh, in the field of microsurgery unique things that he's doing may allah taala increase his ability and grant him the ability to help more people through his field fantastic work for the shawar but good to know that you're related to him alhamdulillah uh, first cousin and also uh, uh, dr ridwan uh, umar you know look at him i mean in his field he's a pediatrician that is embraced and celebrated by all and you well you guys are as i said unique now you know i remember dr Uh, you know, uh, when I was uh, the, the editor of the Al Burhan for Sheikh Ahmed Dida Rahimullah, and one of the things they encouraged us to do was to write letters to the editor. Said, "Better, 
did you respond to that? Did you respond? And I noticed I used to run up and down to the leader, to the Daily News, to the, you know, Natal Mercury and to the Sunday Times and the Sunday Tribune. And this was what that forced us to do. But Alhamdulillah, subsequently, we had many letters uh, published uh, to the letter, uh, just to the editor column. Also had that, uh, remember, Sabah Jazbai, he, he can write a whole encyclopedia about that. But you are very relevant. And, uh, you know, we noticed that uh, recently you've written uh, letters to the editor. KZN uh, schools are falling to pieces as uh, maintenance uh, take a back seat. And then you have uh, written another letter, gun at uh, toting uh, Teacher allegations must be urgently investigated. And then again, you write a, a comment on the uh, deceased learner at uh, uh, Grosvenor Boys, a suicide of a suicide of a grade eight learner, and that was, you know, even published. And that the other letter you wrote, corporal punishment is tantamount to both uh, physical and emotional assault. And Alhamdulillah, and uh, recently, I think uh, you wrote a letter. Uh, to the editor, backlash from unhappy school principals must be dealt decisively. Now, you know, you being part of uh, the DA and, you know, your portfolio is education. Perhaps it's in crisis and you see guns being flaunted about pupils uh, hitting each other. Teachers are uh, set upon and in certain instances, uh, murders taking places in places of education where there should be refinement, where there should be a decorum of respect and so forth. What's going on, Dr. Imran Kika? And it seems as if that you are uh, the only politician that is, uh, you know, really bringing this issue to the fore and uh, tackling it head on. Give us a little bit of insight on that. Uh, Brother Shafat, where do you start with these things? You know, it's how do you eat an elephant? You eat it one piece at a time. So very similarly, when I was given the task of uh, dealing with education as my primary portfolio in my previous term in the legislature, I was on health. I looked at the mess that it was in and I said, look, where do you start? So what are the fundamentals? So I always put it this way. I say there is a triad of quality education, good quality education. So the triad of that good quality education, and I always put it down this way at the apex of it, if you look at it like what I call an equilateral triangle. So you get a triangle, all angles of the triangle are equal, and they have for it to be called an equilateral triangle. So similarly, if any one of these three areas are missing in education, then education will never be of good quality and you won't get the product that you want. Uh, so I'll come to the product just now. So the triad of good education, which is what I call it, at the apex of it, I always say is good leadership. And on the other two angles, or on the other two sides, are parental involvement and the third being good infrastructure. So you need all these three ingredients for it to work well. Otherwise, it collapses. Now, good leadership means what? Leadership means everything from the top in terms of the political dynamics of the department. So you have the National Department of Basic Education, you have a minister, you have a deputy minister, you have a portfolio committee uh, that oversees that in parliament. And, and in the province, you have an MEC or member of the executive council, or like we have in the Western Cape, uh, and a provincial minister. You have um, a chairperson of the education portfolio committee. You have members of the education portfolio committee. 
you have social partners in this mix of leadership, uh, such as the unions, and then you have, um, as well as in the leadership component, you have the administration of the department uh, at its various levels, starting with the director general at national level and at provincial level, you have what is called the head of department, each province has one. And then you drill down to school level leadership. So the principal is the leader of the school or the CEO of the school. Um, he has a senior management team that is responsible for the leadership of the school. And from the parent component, you have a school governing body, which has a uh, chairperson and his executive uh, that run that component from the parent side. So that is just touching on the various aspects of the leadership. So all of those aspects of leadership, Brother Shafar, need to work well for that to work. Then, of course, you have parental involvement. So schools are a microcosm of our communities and societies. They are not there to, you know, they ideally should be there to correct um, many things, not only in part education. But what happens is schools inherit what comes from the outside. So parental involvement, what happens in the house, the manner in which children are brought up, what they are taught, what they are exposed to, all of that that the parents need to be involved in, not just checking whether the children do their homework. So like my son will bring his homework book to me and, and he says that, you know, you need to sign this. So I'll go through it and say, why did you make those mistakes? What happened here? What did the, why did the teacher make that comment? So the parental involvement. Uh, to give you an example, I, I have four children that are in school at, at the moment. So I have this discussion with them every day at the dinner table. How was school? Did your teachers come? What did you do? What did you learn? Uh, did anybody bully you? Did you bully anybody? So parental involvement, that kind of a discussion. But not only just that discussion about school. It's about how do we bring our children up? What do we expose them to? Which direction do we lead them? Do we encourage them to read? And so many aspects of parental involvement uh, that makes a good sound learner that contributes to the schooling environment, that contributes to a, a good wholesome learner that will go there to learn things, rather than, for example, a complaint that I received about a learner whose family are all gangsters and he comes there and he disrupts the classroom environment, threatens the educators, and you know disrupts the teaching and learning environment uh, to the extent that the classroom has become dysfunctional in one of the schools. So that's the opposite end of it. And then, of course, the other part of the triad is good infrastructure. That means not just the buildings, it means that all the ingredients that the learners need like textbooks and other things that they need, what we call learner-teacher support material. And you mentioned the example of the 633 principals in schools uh, that are very, very upset with the department because the department no longer allows them to procure textbooks on their own. So you get in education law, the South African Schools Act, there are various acts and legislation that govern education in our, in our country. The South African Schools Act, which was passed in 1996, uh, has part of its responsibilities. There is a section of the Act, Section 21, that uh, 21C in particular, that allows schools to procure their own textbooks, their own learner-teacher support material, that means stationery and other items, um, on their own. So if there are a fee paying school, they will collect student fees, they will get 
some money from the department. All of this put together from their budget, they may go out and procure books on their own. But what we found on various oversight visits that we do at the beginning of each schooling year is that some of these schools, or, the, or many of these schools, in fact, with function C, um, that are allowed to go and buy these books, either by inferior material, don't procure it on time, and have a whole host of excuses, or they procure it at inflated prices. Um, I don't have to tell you that, you know, once you get involved in procurement at inflated prices and invoice prices, uh, well, then there's some element of corruption that they must exist there. Doesn't have to be the case, but more often than not, if you're buying a textbook from a shop, if I walk into a shop and buy a textbook at 10 Rand and the school is paying 25 Rand for it, uh, well, there's something, there's some sort of sharp deal that's going on in between. So we found that this also exists in many schools. So the department took the decision uh, in 633 schools that they will withdraw this uh, ability from the schools, which the department or MEC's office is empowered to do with these HOD. They are well within the law to withdraw this function from schools, and they've done that. So, of course, these guys were very upset. The fact that they were so upset needs no mention, you know, when you come to think of what may have been going on, why they want to protect this. And I always say where there's smoke, there's fire when it comes to procurement and supply chain in, these, in the department. So we've had a look at, and I visited this facility where which the department uses to procure these LTSM or learner teacher support material. I found that it's of good quality. I found that it is market related. I found that they deliver it on time, that the distribution system is intact, and that those schools that they supply, the majority of the schools in the province, always have everything that they, they are supposed to get um, as it's supposed to be. So this company is actually doing a fantastic job, notwithstanding that there may have been some issues in, in, in the awarding of this tender at the very beginning, but I think they have proven themselves to be a company that is reliable and worthwhile. And that is what is what we want to see. So when these teachers, in terms of that part of, uh, when I say good infrastructure, I mean all the ingredients that go into a school. When these principals got upset, we actually sided with the department. So it is not always the case where people say, oh, you know, you come from the DA, you only complain. Well, here we, we, we're giving you a classical example of something that is working well and something that we support, and that's something that we have encouraged the department in and stood behind them as a political party to say, well done to you in this regard, you're doing a fantastic job. So when it comes to maintenance in schools, like I said, you know, um, the sound classroom environment, again, you have uh, maintenance taking the back seat because we've had this large number of recently storm-damaged schools, um, we've also had those schools that were looted last year, 189 of them. We've had those storm-damaged schools that are going back to 2016, so far back as the storms of 2016 and, and 2019. So you have almost a 1,000 schools that are affected by poor maintenance uh, related directly to these storms on top of the routine maintenance that should be taking place in schools which are also affected because there isn't enough money.
Now, why isn't there enough money? Well, one is the budget cuts. So uh, there's been, in this year's budget, although they are claiming, the MEC and his department are claiming that the budget has increased, it hasn't increased. Uh, if you look at how much money was used by the end of the education year, at the end of the financial year on 31st of March this year, which is the end of the uh, financial year in, in provincial and national departments, the school, the, the Department of Education spent 1.3 billion rands more than what they were given at the beginning of this year. So that means that going into this financial year, they are already on a back foot. When we get to halfway through the year, there is an appropriation process and then there is a final appropriation process. And the department is going to run short of not only that money, but it's going to run short of money that it's going to need in the year. We're still, Brother Shafar, the next financial year, the 23-24 financial year, is going to be set back by 11 billion rands. Let me say that again. 11 billion, not million, billion rands. On top of what it's going to run short of this year. So if we think that the education department is going to be in trouble this year, it's going to be in even bigger trouble next year. So what the National Department has said, we're going to cut your budget by 11 billion rands. Go and see where you can cut your budget. So how do you cut the budget when it's all, when the department is already in dire straits, when it's already in problems, when it already won't be able to fill? I'm giving you the exact figure. This year, there will be a shortage of 4,089 teachers in classrooms. On top of that, there was an already existing vacancy of 1,300 somewhat principals in our schools, 1,400 heads of departments in schools, senior management staff in schools. So this is a crisis that the department currently finds itself in. And the national department is still saying, we're still going to cut your budget in the 23-24 in the financial year by a further 11 billion rands. Go and find a way out of it. So what happens? Not only does good quality education decline and decrease, but all the ingredients that go with it also decline and decrease. Schools are already crumbling. Um, you know, if I, I should perhaps send you some, some pictures of how principals send me pictures of schools where when it rains, you know, the classrooms are flooded, potholes in classroom, let alone our roads, five million textbooks that are short in our province, Pit latrines, the MEC said he's going to eradicate all pit latrines in KZN by the end of this year. Let me tell you that's the biggest lie that I've heard. Or let me not be so uh, forthright if you want to put it that way. Let's say uh, that it's a false promise. Even if he eradicates the almost 982 pit schools with pit latrines in the province in the upcoming year, the problem is that they, there is no oversight over the projects in these schools. I'll give you an example. We went to Inanda a few weeks back and we were talking to the district officials and they said to us that, you know, pit latrines require water and it, they, they, when they eradicate them, they change them to a flushing system. So there's no longer a pit where learners can fall into and that kind of thing where they require desludging that never happens and all kinds of other things. Even if I send you pictures of that, you'll get the shock of your life, Brother Shafat. The listeners won't be able to see it because we don't have any way to show it to them, but it's absolutely disgusting and inhumane, the conditions that some of the young learners find themselves in. 
So you require water for these uh, new toilets, flush toilets that are built. Now the, the department went and built in Inanda at one of the schools. They went and built at two of the schools that we visited. They went and built these flush toilets. But there's no municipal infrastructure in those areas, the rural areas. There is no water anyway. The, the people from there either get water from the rivers or they walk, you know, five kilometers to a standpipe. But they build these toilets. So somebody made money off something. There is no proper assessment of which schools can have these flushing toilets and which can't. So whilst the MEC makes that commitment on the one hand, I think there's going to be a hell of a lot of skullduggery that's going to go on uh, in the eradication of these pit latrines. Then he made the commitment that, you know, in schools that don't have water, there will be boreholes dug. He gave a figure of, uh, you know, I think it was about 300 schools in which that would be done. There's no money for it, but, you know, they make these endless and continuous. So that infrastructure portion. So again, leadership, parental involvement, good infrastructure. You know, Brother Shavata, I can endlessly tell you about things that are going on in our schools, but I can tell you right now, that these three components do not work well in the province that I am in, in KwaZulu-Natal. So there's a deficiency in the leadership. There's a deficiency in parental involvement. There's a deficiency in, in the infrastructure, all the ingredients that go into a school. And as a result of which, we're producing almost 100,000 learners every year that come out of the metric exams that end up in the unemployment lines because we know that of the hundred and some odd thousand that finish matric each year, not all get into a tertiary institution. So our schools are not producing, you know, learners that become contributors to what we call a capable and ethical state. That is what we want to see. Of course, I'm, and, and I'm a DA politician, so I'm saying this very unashamedly from the seat that I sit in, that under the ANC government, we'll never have capable and ethical state. And so, if we want learners to be citizens that will contribute towards a capable and ethical state, we have to have the ingredients in education that will produce that. Now, let me give you an example of a contrast. So not too long ago, uh, probably about a month and a half ago, I had the opportunity to spend one day in, in the Western Cape because of the two days that were planned, I, I couldn't make it due to my duties in the legislature in KZN. Uh, this was a party arranged visit to schools in the Western Cape. We visited some schools there. Now, we visited one school um, where it caters for learners that cannot read and write. So they have a disability. They cannot read and write at all. They can do everything else, but they can't read and write. So this school, there are three like these in the Western Cape that are unique to the Western Cape, do not exist in any other province in the country, where the province decided we can't take these learners and just leave them at the mercy of uh, society and the community. We need to empower them. So they've taken these learners, they are directed to these schools. When you go there, they teach them things like how to cook. They, we went to that school, we saw a workshop. So in that workshop, the learners were taught how to change brakes, how to balance tires, how to fix. The, when we went there, they were changing the suspension on a vehicle. Um, from the catering department, we received some beautiful breakfast platters, cheese, and you know all 
kinds of dried fruit and they prepare things. So the school is actually equipped. There are three schools like this that equip them. So when these learners leave there, obviously they can't get a metric certificate because the CAP system or the CAPS curriculum that we run in our schools requires a learner to pass metric who can read and write. Otherwise they can't. There is what is called a DCAP system for learners with other disabilities, but doesn't cater for this cater of learner. So what the department then does is issue them with their own certificate currently. And so when they go out into the working environment, these learners are having then difficulty because the workers, the, the companies that require a metric certificate don't understand that they are coming with something that is not a metric certificate. So the department then engages with these companies and says to them that, look here, um, this, is, this, this is what we've been doing. They then understand and then give those learners jobs. So those learners that would have been left at the mercy of society and the communities and ended up in some unfortunate situation, actually being capacitated through the Department of Education. This is a caring Department of Education that is taking a learners and making them contributors towards a capable and ethical state in whatever way they can. So they will be employed, they will be able to generate an income, and they will be able to live lives of mm. some normality. This is the difference between the Department of Education we have here, where those mm. learners are not catered for, versus there. I can go on about the other two schools that I Gee. saw there as well. But this is just to give you a synopsis of what the education department is actually looking like and going through. Yeah, and you know, Jazakallah for sharing uh, that insight. Uh, if we didn't have you, we wouldn't have, we would have missed out a big time on that. And I'm uh, looking at some of the questions that, that are coming for you whilst we are advertising your composite uh, to the listeners. And uh, Sadek asked a question, he says, uh, what are some of the major checkups uh, that uh, Dr. Kika does as uh, I go for uh, acupuncture? Uh, some of the major checkups yeah, you do, you know, when there's a patient is by you and you're going to, you know, administer acupuncture on them. What are the major checkups, uh, doctor? Brother Shavat, in, in Chinese medicine, we have our traditional methods of establishing what we call syndromes and patterns. So we would use a pulse diagnosis where we would feel the patient's pulse, we would look at their tongue. We would uh, either get odors or smells from the patient. We'd be able to feel the patient to know whether they are hot or cold. Uh, we, you know, the, the, the different types of examinations. We would listen to their signs and symptoms, and we would use uh, various techniques to establish uh, what syndrome the patient has. Uh, and then based on that syndrome, we would either decide or a combination of treatment of acupuncture and herbs or something to apply or whatever else we use in Chinese medicine. And that would determine the direction that we would take with the patient. Uh, of course, uh, Chinese medicine in China has evolved uh, to the point where Western medicine is definitely incorporated. Diagnostic techniques are definitely incorporated into the diagnostic processes and procedures. And so we also use those here in South Africa. So we would, if we need to do blood tests for a patient, if we need to send the patient for an X-ray, ultrasound, CT scan, MRI, whatever the you know need might be, or whatever other test uh, that the patient might need, we would look at what is needed. 
and of course I do have uh, behind me a, a medical degree uh, which greatly sets me apart from uh, those many other Chinese medicine practitioners in South Africa that are trained only in Chinese medicine. So we are able to look at all of that as well. And um, that is what we would do. Uh, in China, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to, to be there for a while. And, you know, you'll find that Chinese medicine is incorporated even up to tertiary level hospitals, what we might call here in South Africa. So here in South Africa, in, in KwaZulu-Natal, we have um, Nkosi Albert Lutuli Hospital. Many people would know it. Grace Hospital, for example. In the Western Cape, we might have Khrotiskir and those very big hospitals. So even in those that level of hospital in China, you would have Chinese medicine practiced alongside Western medicine completely integrated. The same thing in Pakistan when I was there, we found, uh, of course, not in the tertiary hospitals. I did um, work for two years uh, at, at civil hospital in Karachi. There we didn't have uh, the Unani medicine practitioners coming and working with us. But what happened is that there they had uh, in the Unani Medicine Hospital that level of Western medicine incorporated. So the Unani Medicine practitioners there had that exposure to Western medicine and surgery. Uh, so that kind of environment was created there. So Jeeva Shafat, uh, there is no major prohibition in terms of our law where these diagnostic techniques may be used. Uh, although the council may have an issue, our allied health professions council in the manner in which uh, the interaction takes place and so on. So uh, there is some regulation there. However, I do think, and I must place on record, although I am the chairperson of the professional board for Chinese medicine, acupuncture, Nani medicine, and Ayurveda in the country, uh, probably until the elections take place in September, October, um, I do believe that our act that governs the profession is a little bit old and needs to change, uh, particularly to allow for these diagnostic techniques and methods to be inclusive or more inclusive, I should say. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that we do in our practice over and above the traditional methods of diagnosis before we embark on any treatment plan or option that we offer our patients. Mm. Uh, being the uh, you know uh, president of uh, this uh, Unani Tib and uh, you know Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, uh, you can call it alternative medicine. Uh, how has your journey been? Uh, you know what, uh, how exciting has it been? Uh, some of the major achievements and uh, you know highlights of your your tenure as president there, doctor or leadership. Brother Shafat, uh, I'm not the president, but I currently chair the professional board. There are different professional boards in the Allied Health Professionals Council. Um, I served for, I think it was 10 years prior to that. This would be a five-year period that I've, I'm just completing. But for a period of 10 years before, as the representative of Chinese medicine on council, so on, on the Allied Health Professionals Council. So, you know, it's, it's there to protect the public. The purpose of the Allied Health Professionals Council of South Africa is to protect the public. Its primary mandate is to protect the public from practitioners, if I can be as blunt as that. So if practitioners do something wrong, then it is our responsibility to then take that practitioner to task and to then deal with that practitioner according to the law that is made available to us and working 
within the confines of the act that governs the profession or the professions so it's it's a it's a highly regulated environment and the other purpose is then other than protecting the public is uh, you you could say this is also protecting the public because we regulate the quality of education in these disciplines in the country so the the universities that offer training in homeopathy in chinese medicine unani medicine and so on aromatherapy and other professions in in the country we regulate the quality of education this is the other purpose of the council so the council would then um receive applications um look at curricula and and to give you an example uh, there is an institution in the country where we felt that they were not up to scratch in terms of the quality of education that they were providing to learners and so we did not recognize their qualifications anymore and i'm not going to mention the name because it has legal implications if i mention the name so what we did as a council we said look we don't think you meet the criteria for registration and any of your graduates that come out of there we're going to subject you to an examination that is set by the professional board and if your students pass it then we will register them if they don't pass it we'll give them other opportunities and so those kinds of things are being done and then you know so institutions will come to us for example and say look we want to teach this course for example the university of johannesburg is currently teaching two postgraduate courses that means doctors after they qualify medical doctors uh, can go and study acupuncture at the university of uh, johannesburg or they can study phytotherapy as a course so those are kinds of things that prior to the university offering it the university would have come to our professional board and they would have made a presentation to us and they would have said to us this is what we want to teach this is how we want to teach it this is what we want to do and so we would be the ones that would look at that and say yes or no and then it would go through the mill as i if i can put it that way and then eventually the university and then of course once the graduates come out of there it's for us to say that look do they meet the criteria for registration with our council so that's the entire process that we would look at and so i think that is quite rewarding because here's a university that is now offering these two courses for example and we were intimately involved in the approval of those courses so we have a number of people that are enrolled in them at the moment and inshallah these are highly qualified people i know um, of one person who i recommended that they do this course you know a, a very highly qualified specialist very rare in the country that is now studying acupuncture for example so he will be able to offer so much uh, to uh, to people both in terms of uh, the western medical paradigm and acupuncture that he is studying uh, in terms of you know benefiting patients that you will see so this is very rewarding alhamdulillah and it's been like i say a 15 year long journey that will end soon i don't know if i'll get reelected it will all be dependent on um you know nominations it's it's a election process that goes on amongst the practitioners uh, i wouldn't mind serving another 5 years on council i mean on the professional board uh, so i will put my name out there when the time comes and see if i do get nominated and then finally elected and um yeah i mean i, I can tell you that my association 
uh, in Chinese medicine, acupuncture, were not too happy with some of the decisions that we took, particularly pointed a finger at me with regards to one or two things. But these are the things that go with um, with the type of office that you uh, you know you occupy. Not everybody is very happy with everything that you do, uh, but you have to look at at the bottom line, the greater good of the public, the greater good of the expansion of the professions and the sustainability of the council. So, you know, if we add all of that up, I think we've ticked those boxes and I think we've gone a long way to ensure that there will be more available for the general public out there in terms of their healthcare when many of these people graduate from these causes and inshallah they will benefit from more acupuncture and phytotherapy, which are the two causes that are currently underway there. I really appreciate it and a brilliant input from you, Doctor. I'm glad that question came through and it wasn't even planned. It just came through because the Divine Decree wanted that to be, you know, highlighted. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. And you, as I said, you know, you're someone that, uh, mashallah, product knowledge is absolutely brilliant. Not one stutter from you. It was just pure facts coming through and uh, full marks uh, to you, Doctor Imran Kika. Uh, Yusuf says, uh, why do two uh, toenails uh, thicken after the age of 50? Doc, you're still a lighty, you're 47. Let me look at my... Hey, my toenails. Yeah. I think there are toenails that you're getting thick there, Doc. What's <laughs> uh, um, the reason? I, I, I'm not convinced that it's part of the natural aging process. So, yes. uh, I, I've seen, you know, countless patients. I can't even tell you how many patients I've seen in my career spending some 20 odd years um i don't think it's a natural phenomenon that toenails thicken in people over 50 years uh, so i don't know where the brother got that um, notion from that it is a natural process what is natural is uh, that when we age processes in our bodies slow down so it is quite possible that you know um, the, the healing process may have slowed down in the brother. Uh, you know, as we say in Chinese medicine, the jing or the qi, uh, you know, as we age, uh, depletes slightly. Uh, so this brother might have a problem where he might have a, an infection of the toenails, may perhaps even a fungal infection of the toenail uh, that is causing, causing the thickening of the toenail. So I would suggest that either he sees healthcare practitioner, and I say healthcare practitioner because... I'm not limiting it to a GP or a dermatologist who deal with toenails. You can come and see us also, the Chinese medicine doctors or the Unani medicine practitioners or doctors or the homeopath to have a look at what might be causing the thickening of those toenails and then probably treat it. Just as a matter of interest, Brother Shafar, um, I just uh, soaked um, some herbs in vinegar recently, um, some dried herbs. I put them in a vinegar, we, we're extracting them with vinegar specifically for uh, fungal infections of the toenails. I do see quite a bit of it in practice every now and again as part of the conditions that patients come to see us with. And I had ran out of uh, this tincture that we make using vinegar. We give it to patients in drop form. We tell them to apply it and uh, put a cotton wool over it after soaking the feet in some water or vinegar for a little while. And alhamdulillah, it has over the years shown me very fantastic results. There are medicines, of course, that are available both internal and external uh, from your GP or your doctor. 
your dermatologist that you could also use for it if it is a fungal infection. Um, look, there are all kinds of uh, other conditions related to toenails. For example, if they improperly clipped, they can become ingrown and you know certain part of the nail may thicken uh, that may be causing those thickened nails. So again, uh, people that are well trained in conditions of the toenails and the foot are podiatrists. Uh, we, a lot of people underuse these professionals. You'll find them in the bigger cities in Newcastle now. I'm fortunate that we are finding that we have two podiatrists, one that is calling from Ladysmith, so there is one in Ladysmith, and one that is permanently based here, uh, that deal with all manner of conditions of the foot, whether it's the toenails, whether you have any other condition of the foot, slow healing wounds of the foot, all kinds of things. So medical and surgical conditions of the foot, see the podiatrist, uh, and, and inshallah, uh, that will help you a lot. So I hope I've assisted the brother a little bit, but yeah, definitely, you know, it's not related to all people with um, who age over the age of 50. That That is my experience. No, doctor, how, um, you know, Chinese medicine, how much of importance uh, do they, uh, you know, add on uh, to, uh, to foot massage or taking care of the foot? Because that's a very important part for humans being, you know, for your mobility and so forth. And, uh, it, uh, you know, and all your nerves, uh, all that ends up uh, on the feet, uh, doctor. You know, uh, perhaps uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's not about, you know, Chinese medicine doesn't have a particular study about the foot, um, you know, per se, such as podiatry, for example, that deals with conditions of the feet. Um, so what we would do is we would look at the patient holistically. So yes, there are very many conditions that manifest in the feet, diabetic neuropathy, for example. Um, again, diabetes gives rise to many of the foot conditions that we see um, where there's poor circulation to the feet, you end up with all kinds of vascular complications of the feet. So we would rather look at causes, uh, the greater cause of things. Again, if we look at a condition like diabetes, in Chinese medicine, uh, we have many of those syndromes or patterns that we would be able to identify in patients and that we would address. Uh, so it's not just about addressing the condition of the feet. The pain in the feet, the poor circulation in the feet, of course, we found great relief in many of those patients by using the acupuncture points in the feet when they come with a specific pain or problem in the foot. Of course, if a person walks in with a dead toe in a Chinese medicine practice in South Africa, you know, it would be ill-advised of that Chinese medicine practitioner or Nani medicine or any other practitioner in the alternate fields to say, look, I'll be able to treat this and offer them all kinds of things that might not work rather than refer them to a surgeon that might need to amputate that toe. So it depends what presents in the practice. So I through the number of years and experience in practice, I've seen very many of these conditions that come to the practice. And so we've treated, alhamdulillah, with lots of relief to patients in combination with acupuncture, herbs, and of course, taking whatever the GP might have given them for that, you know, neuropathy that we call it, that they may have. Uh, there are lots of vitamins and supplements that also go a long way. Some of the circulatory problems, if we catch them early enough, a fantastic herbal remedies in Chinese medicine that we may be able to combine. And of course, 
you know, uh, where we would use things like Tui Na, which is a Chinese massage system, where we would be able to incorporate that as part of the regimental therapies for a patient that may walk in. But again, it requires lifestyle changes and alterations of eating habits, which is what we call Shi Lao in Chinese medicine or Chinese nutrition. All of this combined, you know, the idea is restoring balance between the yin and yang, as we call it in Chinese medicine, uh, restoring that balance of the body that would cause the disease to then either improve or go away, um, of course, when that balance is reached. So it's it's a general approach. I'm not going to speak specifically about, you know, the, the foot and its related conditions. But since you asked it about that, I'm responding in this manner. I tell you, Doctor, you and I had a fantastic conversation. Cool, calm, collected. Really enjoyed your company. And uh, yeah, time's uh, caught up with us. And perhaps your parting words uh, this evening. Brother Shafat, um, we always give the same advice. And that is, if you're on chronic medication, make sure that you take it habitually. If you haven't had a checkup in a long time, go and have those checkups. Those checkups shouldn't only include being checked up by your GP or your specialist. Come to us as well. Those of us that are involved in these areas of complementary and alternative medicine, we're able to give you the other paradigm. We're able to talk about these balances in the body. We're able to give you nutritional advice. So, for example, if you 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 were habitually eating a certain type of food, then we would be able to advise you. It is good advice and from the sunnah to fast on a Monday and a Thursday. Very good for the help, helps for many conditions. To use these therapies that are given to us, such as cupping, for example, it, provided it is provided by a practitioner that is registered with the Allied Health Professions Council of South Africa. Don't go to anybody who's just uh, sporting a certificate and claiming to be registered with a voluntary organization. This, you know, they, there's a saying in, in Urdu, Neem Hakim Khatrejan, uh, you know, lukewarm Hakim that is claiming all kinds of things, Khatrejan, danger to your life. We've seen these complications in our own practice. So avoid these kinds of things. Brother Shavat, I always give advice that go and check up your vitamin D levels. Go to your GP, tell them you want to do a blood test for it whenever you're doing your routine blood test and test it. It goes a long way in preserving good and healthy, uh, a good and healthy body and mind. So get it checked up. It helps prevent many diseases. It helps as part of the treatment of many diseases. And it goes a long way to reduce what we call chronic inflammation, which contributes to many of the disease conditions that we see, including cancer. So go and check this thing up. It's a simple thing. It's a, it's a test that costs less than 200 rands. And the supplements are dirt cheap and can go a long way to helping you improve the quality of your life. Eat well, Brother Shafat. Eat in moderation. Don't eat any too much of anything. Some people will come and argue, and I had an argument with somebody recently that said, no, you know, I'm diabetic, but a little bit of honey in the morning is not a bad thing. Yes, Allah Ta'ala has mentioned it as a cure. Nabi Karim Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has uh, spoken abundantly about honey. It is there in our kitabs of Tib and Sunnah. But if you're diabetic, don't have these kinds of things. So come and ask us and we'll tell you, those of us that are qualified in these fields to talk about them, we'll tell you about what is good for you and what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. So if you're diabetic, don't have these sweet things. Don't have honey and sugar. 
Don't say, oh, it is a sunnah and I should have it. Uh, there are certain things that you should... Kulunji, for example, is very hot and dry. So there are certain hot and dry conditions in which you shouldn't be having kulunji. Yes, having the sunnah of the seven grains, alhamdulillah, go ahead and do that. But more than that, come and see us because it could have a dire and drastic effect on your health. For example, if you have high blood pressure of a certain temperament and you're taking kulunji, it will worsen your condition. So come and see us. Ask us about these herbs and supplements and we will guide you. Don't do things on your own. If you tread this path on your own, you'll cause a lot of damage and harm to yourself. So be careful about these things. So Brother Shafat, that is my advice in general and imparting. May Allah Ta'ala grant Jannah to the Marhumin. May He grant Shifa to those who are ill and Afia to everybody. And uh, may we benefit from what is halal and tayyiban whether it is in our food and or whether it is in our risk. So may Allah Ta'ala grant this to us, grant us ease and grant us comfort and make everything good for us, inshallah. I mean, uh, Dr. Sahaba, and uh, Jazakallah Khaira for being with us on Amarka Sahaba, voice of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah for the opportunity. Most welcome, Dr. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah we will continue after that.